David Bollier. I'm an independent scholar and activist on the commons who blogs and writes books and in other ways tries to advance the commons paradigm. My name is George Kefensis and I've been involved in many political projects over the years and a number of them having to do with the idea and the practice of commoning. My name is uh, Massimo De Angelis. I'm a Marxist political economist. From the early 2000s, I started to think about what are the commons and how do they work? How can we conceptualize? How can we politicize them? This is the kind of question I've been asked. My name is Peter Leinbaugh. I'm a retired history professor. I'm uh, sometimes describe myself as a people's remembrancer using a Welsh term of bardic lore. I have been thinking about the commons in one way or another ever since I was a kid in post-war London. As children, we roamed among bombed out buildings uh, and the laws of private property didn't apply. And then later, I read the Communist Manifesto when I was at a high school in Frankfurt, Germany, and it made sense to me. And so when the Soviet Union and the communist countries uh, fell apart, collapsed, it kind of relieved us of Cold War censorship. And one could think again about the commons in its uh, true meanings in history. And always I've been interested in the commons. I've been interested in alternatives to the unfairness and the misery of commodity production and capitalist organization of, uh, of production. Uh, I've long been interested in the history of crime. And here I don't mean the, thie the thieving that is at the base of capitalism, you know, when our subsistence is taken away. Instead, I mean uh, that thieving for, for subsistence which poor people have always been forced to do when their own means of subsistence, namely the land, was taken away. So our first studies had to do with the history of crime, which I rapidly learned was a history of uh, people trying to obtain subsistence in a regime of privatization. I see a number of reasons why we don't understand the commons. So it took me, what is it, uh, almost 35 years to, uh, to begin to think about commons, even though I've taught political philosophy many, many times before that. We don't understand it, partly because we've been trained to think about property as either being private property or state property. 
here in the United States, this conception of property basically had no foundation because we had no Middle Ages, for example. We had no commons, really, of the sort that was recognized in Britain by the law. And we didn't call, the, at that time, the indigenous people's land the, their commons because that would have meant, under British law, to recognize their rights. And one of the great desires of political philosophy in Britain in the 16th and 17th centuries was to make sure that the indigenous Americans would not have any rights over their land, their common land. So basically, much of the political thought that makes up the United States intellectual heritage is built to bar recognition that, for example, the American Indians were living in many ways as a common, using the territory as a common. It's easy to not grasp the commons quickly because there are so many different access points to it. First of all, it's not a totalizing philosophy or language because it has to be enacted uh, by a community of people and communities differ radically around the world. You could say, you know, what is the commons? You might say, what is humanity? And one way that I often try to describe the commons is it's similar to DNA in that it's underspecified so that it can adapt to local circumstances. And that's why you can have the same human species that manifests in such radically different ways around the world. Because it's a, it, like the commons, it's adapted to local circumstances. And so that will be history, culture, leadership, geography, and many other things that will influence how a commons gets shaped. And yet, there are many similar principles that inform uh, various commons, as, as Eleanor Ostrom identified with her famous eight design principles, which she identified as common denominators in successful commons. Things like a bounded community and uh, graduated sanctions for those who violate the rules of the community, bottom-up processes for making the rules without uh, top-down interference from outside forces like the state, uh, and things like that. And so there are some principles at work, but they manifest in radically different ways, differently in a community forest or fishery than, say, on the Internet. Now, part of this has to do with the resource, because... Um, you know, a natural resource is often finite and depletable. Uh, it can be ruined, whereas software code can be reproduced for free and shared at next to no cost. But that said, uh, a commons is not defined by the resource. It's really defined by social, it's a social system defined by how the people choose to make it. And there's usually an emphasis on fairness for everyone, certain transparency, uh, responsibilities combined with entitlements, and, and so on. So it's understandable that people are confused. The other reason that people don't understand the commons is that capital market and capitalist culture uh, essentially have ex-nominated it. They've created a void in the language so that we can't even describe it uh, a very accurately or richly, and therefore it, it's invisible. Uh, historically, the, the lands that were used as commons were called wastelands by capitalists because they were deemed 
a not private property and therefore a waste. Uh, and anybody could do with, with them what they wanted. When in fact, a commons is a, a collectively managed resource by a defined community. So, you know, there's reasons why there's misunderstanding and confusion about the commons. Well, the reason is clear that social um, production of ideas is in control, is controlled by those who own society. And the production of those ideas through publishing, movies, television, media, um, lecturing, that is paid for by those whose direct interest is in the perpetuation of a system of individual ownership, of competitive dog-eat-dog life, and who say that the only way of meeting human needs is by the privatization of resources. The common, uh, well, what I, I would call it today, that those social systems within which people create their own alternative to capital, where they reproduce their own values and value practices, which are completely different than that of capital. So in the study of the commons and in the practices of the commons, we have already alternative systems. There are two ways of going about the process of definition. One is by looking at a number of examples and uh, getting the essence of them. And the other is by presenting a set of axioms that define what you're looking to define. And so either going from examples to the generalities or starting from the generalities and then applying them to different examples. So these two ways of going through the process of definition uh, can be applied to the commons. I, I want to shy away from being an expert on the commons. Uh, I'm a historian of it. I don't think there is any expertise and that the knowledge of the commons belongs to commoners. So I, I, I just uh, don't mean to play word games, but it's not, a, it's not a specialist technical thing. You know, like if you think of enclosers, those people who shut up the commons, you do think of experts, that is, surveyors, for instance, or real estate title hold, uh, searchers. But there's no real equivalent for commoners unless it's in our memory uh, and unless it's in our historical experience. I think what we have to start with is it's a community of mutuality. It's, we have to begin with human cooperation for meeting human needs, uh, in contrast to individualism searching competitively for profits. Commons is not pie in the sky. It's not um, merely an ideal. It's a human practice. And in fact, I think what one could argue that commonate has been longer practice than, than virtually any other form of, of social life, of human life. Uh, it's essential to the reproduction of, our, of children. Uh, it's essential to our interactions. Uh, 
as David Graeber has explained. Actual common anus is generally only recognized when it's taken away. You don't know what you got. You know, when you lose the sidewalk in the suburban um, development, or when you lose the water fountain in the school that you attend, then you realize, oh, I had part of the land where I could walk, or oh, I had water that was healthy that I could drink for free. Um, so uh, this expropriation or removal of the commons is often the first time we get to see uh, that such a thing ever existed. The world as we know it is wrapped up in fences and borders because we allowed others to rule us, to tell us it was their property. Don't touch this. Don't do that. This belongs to someone. Well, why? Why does it belong to them? Don't you see the laws of property are nothing more than a way to get you to obey? What right does someone have other than a, an illusion created by the state to buy a building of hundreds of people and increase their rent for no reason? What right? Does anyone have to take a forest that is sacred to me and my allies? Why am I not consulted? Ah, because I don't have that falsehood, that lie called property. Wake up, people. Is it your property when the police perform a no-knock raid and shove a gun in your face at three in the morning? What respect for property exists there? What property exists when the cops can put me down on the ground and draw my blood to see how much I drink? Seize everything. Stop at nothing. Just as easily as they make you their property, it's time for you to stop seizing what they've stolen from you in the first place. We have the story of privatization. We have the story of competition, of conquest, theft, and genocide, and endless exploitation. But there's another story in history as well, which we haven't uncovered, and which we historians, I think, have been derelict. We've discarded as backward, or we've looked down our nose upon uh, indigenous practices, or we've, uh, we've, we've been prejudiced against other, entire other continents or we've been narrow-minded in our concept of labor history. Labor history is the history of life, and the history of life can't be written without the commons. There's a, a sort of intellectual violence that has brought us to repress our understanding of the commons.
and there's also been a raw military and political violence. It made it for a period of time dangerous to talk about it. The political philosopher of 17th and early 18th centuries, John Locke, basically built his whole philosophy of property in such a way as to block any possibility for indigenous Americans to claim land under their feet that their ancestors were buried in, to claim that the, this land was their land. So John Locke's philosophy, political philosophy, is deeply structured to block that special position that, for example, American Indians had towards the land. And John Locke was not alone. And not only were they, there was a thinking about it, but there was one of the major crimes of the last thousand years, the genocide of the indigenous American Indian, was uh, built to stop a communal use of the vast territories of the Americas and turn it into private or state property. And this was done, as we know now, with enormous violence and a planned violence. It was not a couple of rough white settlers who got together and planned an assault on the indigenous people's societies and economy. It was a highly organized assault. Capitalism is very good at making war and devising machines for doing that. And it's very good at at producing different kinds of mental fog. But it cannot uh, meet our demands, our, our yearning for equality, for justice, and for a survivable world. You know, the, the cons includes not just human creatures, but other creatures as well. And as soon as we look at the sky, you know, or the greenhouse gases, or look at earth or sea, we can see how they become uh, polluted, poisoned, and destroyed. Capitalism produces abominations, and it produces desolation. So all of us are longing for some alternative, and it's not just a nostalgic for the past, it's practical matters for how to meet our needs uh, peacefully. When the commons are able to become autonomous on some particular, some fundamental form, uh, some uh, fundamental good like waters or electricity or, or anything, or agriculture, then become more powerful. They become more powerful to be able to defend themselves from an attack, a capitalist attack. The commons empower us, essentially. Empowers us not only to define our own way of doing things collectively together, but also make us more powerful to sustain the attack of capital if we are organized. How can we protect it? Well, that's that's a political question. That's a a very serious question because so often commoning attempts 
bring in the police, bring in force, bring in the armed opposition to the commons. This is certainly the, the history of the subject. But the police also can change. I think this has, we have to remember that, um, just as the slaveholder can change. Um, but they change only when, um, when massive numbers and massive experience uh, uh, causes that change. <clears throat> so I, th I think the, the transition from the virtual to the real is going to be require struggle against the or it does require struggle against the powers that be and how that struggle how we engage that struggle is what we're worrying about and thinking about all over the world and there are many answers to it and many uh, and our experience is becoming richer and richer Yeah, that's a key question, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, how do we defend? Well, I think that not only how we defend, but also our own uh, ability to organize is essential, essential to uh, defend ourselves. And this is a, still a learning process. Is what is called, you know, was a was a a way of thinking the the class struggle as a struggle which passed from a decomposition like fragmentation, attack on the working class, and recomposition when the workers got together politically. They knew what they wanted together. That is political recomposition. And, and I think what we need, really need, is to politicize the commons that exist, not be taking a particular identity. There is a huge variety of commons around, having also different worldviews. And the, the point is how we recompose these different worldviews and we find our own commons that is able then to give us also a political identity. Okay? And that's a huge thing. But I think the commons is the base, are the bases, is the political recomposition of the commons. Then we are on, I think, on a, on a good place to not just to sustain their attack, but also to make our own attack. One of the things that the Zapatistas did was to not only make it possible for tens of thousands of indigenous Chiapans to get back to communal land organization, but to, over the years, organize the political expression of that process so that not only are you involved in your local land organization, but you were involved in a larger process involving hundreds of little villages spread across more than 100 miles of territory. What they've done is dramatically important for us all, not that we can 
practice the same thing as the Zapatistas, of course, but we can learn from them as well as to what's possible, what can be done. Yeah, 1994, they took over a city and burnt the property deed. So uh, insurrection was essential to the appearance of the Zapatistas. Uh, but that insurrection was led by indigenous people of Chiapas. Uh, so our conditions in uh, Maine or Michigan or uh, California or New York are, are not the same. We have to find other methods, but which isn't to say we can't learn from uh, from the struggles of others. The Zapatistas spent a decade at least in preparation and w we need to do the same. Well, that's the timeless question, how to protect the commons from uh, enclosure because capital and the state or the market state as I often refer to it are extremely powerful uh, in, in coercive ways, in militaristic ways, in colonial ways, uh, in gender and race-based ways. Uh, so how to protect the commons? I think it starts as a social practice, uh, but we have a really urgent need to develop new legal and institutional forms. Uh, one of the things that I'm actively exploring right now is what I call reinventing law for the commons. And the problem is that conventional law based on the state, in, at least in Western jurisprudence, is focused on individual rights, individual property rights, and economic growth as priorities. And so anything having to do with sharing and cooperation is either criminalized, like seed sharing or file sharing, or uh, ignored and marginalized. And the problem is a lot of commons are getting to a certain scale these days where there are certain environmental or social crises that require commons, but the law does not formally recognize them. And so the commons remain vulnerable. There's a lot, dozens of legal hacks using state law, such as Creative Commons licenses, the general public license for free and open source software, and things like cooperative law and trust law. And uh, indigenous people have devised a lot of ingenious hacks on the law as well. I think all of these should be consolidated into a new field of legal inquiry called law for the commons which essentially protects the commons from state or market intrusion and authorizes commoners to devise their own laws consistent with state polity. And I think that's one of the big challenges we have is devising a legal framework that can properly respect, honor, and support commons as opposed to simply letting voracious capitalists enclose them. This quickly gets into a discussion of commoning the state, state power and commoning. You know, we, in some ways we have to start to identify those aspects of state power that can be picked off and reconfigured to be friendly to commons, as opposed to captured by the Donald Trumps of the world and the industrial conglomerates, which essentially bend the law to suit their capitalist imperatives. So I came up with a very simple logical argument about commons and their relationship to capitalism. Capitalism, in order to come into being, had to destroy the commons life, the ability of people to live together and have access to their means of, of good subsistence. 
in order for capitalism to exist, they had to destroy this type of commons. But if that's the case, then logically speaking, if I can use what is called a contrapositive argument, if that's the case, basically a necessary condition for capitalism is that the commons not be able to provide adequate subsistence and communal power to the commoners. If there was a powerful commons, then capitalism would not exist. Because who would want to go and sell their labor power and be exploited for wages of a very meager sort if one had an access to good common wealth? So that would mean that capitalism could not exploit, and therefore, in fact, capitalism would be dead. So in that sense, I would say that there's a, a logical argument for saying there is potentially in the idea and practice of the commons an anti-capitalist ethos that is logically very deep. Whether this logic will become part of history, because there are many things that logic tells us should be here, <laughs> and it's not here. What the struggle is, is to transform this logic into history. What the struggle is, is to transform this logic into history. What the struggle is, is to transform this logic into history. Garrett Hardin was a biologist who wrote an essay that became famous in 1968 uh, called The Tragedy of the Commons. And that's very important. Remember, in 1968, the period of great resistance struggles, both in the United States and in Europe and around the world. In the middle of that, people were beginning to speak of a more communal way of organizing life. And thousands of small little experiments in commons living, in communal living, were being organized across the United States by young people, but not only by young people, but certainly it was a very common experience in the 1960s and 70s for people to get together and live communally. Garrett Hardin wrote a piece that was published in Science, an influential scientific journal called The Tragedy of the Commons in 1968. There he set forth an argument that reasonable people cannot live in a, in a common property relationship. Why? If you have a shared resource such as a pasture, uh, no particular user or farmer uh, using that pasture would have an incentive to hold back. And so he would put as many of his sheep or cattle on the, the shared pasture as possible to maximize his own gain. And this would inevitably result in the over-exploitation of the shared resource or the tragedy of the commons. Well, this was really kind of a parable because it was not based on much empirical evidence at all, but it was all just kind of out of the top of his head. But it fit quite nicely with the presumptions of market capitalism that we're all individuals who are out to rationally maximize as much as we can for ourselves and the community be damned. In truth... Uh, communities around the world for time immemorial have found ways to talk with each other, negotiate, 
uh, and culturally developed rules for not overexploiting a resource and for managing, uh, especially things like farmland, fisheries, forest, irrigation water, to manage them sustainably. It took Eleanor Ostrom, who was a a woman in a very male-dominated field of economics and political science, to do amazing uh, empirical fieldwork to rebut this uh, tragedy of the commons thesis and to develop a rich literature showing that commons can be entirely sustainable. The problem was that Hardin was really describing a free-for-all where there's no community, no rules, no monitoring for violations of rules and so on. And so he wasn't really describing a commons because a commons is not a, first of all, it's not simply a resource, it's a social system. And second of all, it's, uh, it's something that is socially bounded and managed. So there's kind of a fundamental misunderstanding, if not a smear, that Hardin devised uh, about the commons. But because there's so many uh, property rights advocates and economists and conservatives who like the notion that any shared resource will result in ruin, that 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 parable just became a truism within the economics and uh, conservative political circles. So we, Ostrom helped fight that in a very scholarly way and uh, developed a, a global uh, community of scholars who have developed a very rich and valuable literature describing how commons can be managed uh, sustainably. This is the origin of the famous tragedy of the commons, which is uh, utter foolishness to anyone who's ever studied the matter. Hodden made it as a thought experiment. And he had no evidence that this is actually what happens in common fields, let's say. And in fact, anyone who was familiar with the commons of Britain in the medieval and early modern times would say that in most cases, nothing like this ever happened because the commoners would organize themselves communally and make decisions about how many cows would be allowed to graze upon the field. And in fact, as the evidence of common property in many parts of the world, including Africa, the Americas, and in Asia, we realize that in most cases, the commons is far from being tragic in terms of ancient Greek theater would be a, a comedy, that is, would have a positive ending. Hardin's view within the space of 15 years was completely rejected because it just didn't reflect the actual facts. And so instead of the tragedy of the commons, we have uh, we normally have actually something like the comedy of the commons. And so Ostrom helped sort of recover some of this really basic fact and uh, give it more prominence in uh, economics and scholarship. The sad postscript is that the economics profession has barely known Ostrom either before or after her Nobel and certainly has not embraced her because, you know, she's studying cooperation, sharing, and the positive aspects of that, which, you know, conventional economists have little use for. Capitalism began by enclosing the commons, but this isn't to say that even though our social life is determined by capitalism, that we cannot comment. In fact, we do. In fact, any change 
is going to come about um, from within. This subject long predates capitalism. You know, it's the the expression to have all things common. You know, it goes back to Christianity. Um, the expression "Omnia sunt communia" was the slogan of the peasants' revolt. Um, even the state itself and its origin opposed the commons. I was I was just reading that in Thomas Eliot's 1531 book called The Book Named the Governor. Uh, he distinguishes things of the public from things of the common. That is, he distinguishes the republic from the commons. And that, that would suggest a a fundamental difference between the state and the commons. And we must note that, that the commons was in between the rise of corporations and their property conceptions, and of course, the nation state. Corporate property, private property, and the state property would recognize each other, but didn't recognize the common property. Well, I think that the commons is ultimately its own category of human existence that has basically gone unrecognized and non-institutionalized, and therefore it's ignored, neglected, or exploited. I think the commons is really a different uh, fundamental way of being, and it's always going to be in tension with capitalism. But we're seeing significant uh, pushback by the commons against capitalist institutions, especially on the internet, between uh, corporate platforms that purport to share Facebook, Google, Uber, Airbnb, and genuine commoning and sharing in which the, the fruits of the shared uh, share, the sharing are not monetized and privatized the way capitalism always has to do it. We're seeing the development of things such as what's called platform cooperativism, where people are starting to devise cooperatives for the resources they collectively generate, uh, especially online. So there is a both a political, cultural, and social struggle going on between commons-based institutions and the conventional capitalist ones. But I think the capitalist institutions are more vulnerable than we realize and it remains to be seen if capitalism can survive uh, the pressures of, of uh, climate change. Uh, and I tend to have my doubts that uh, capitalism can, you know, can survive climate change. We're going to have to transform things. But if you think about any, any struggle, any social movement, any in history, even, even the... I don't know the, the 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 labor movement in the in the thirties, okay, or or any struggle that happens that emerges spontaneously or even organized. There is always an element of the commons, even inside struggles, uh, but even inside factories, offices. You know that you are able to do this interview because you've been into an exchange with a colleague of yours. An exchange which is not a commodity exchange, I assume. It is another micro-commons. It is a moment of setting up a social relations that in time 
in their routine become systems. And then we participate defining relations which is nothing to do with capital relations. So this is a social form which is not capitalism. And of course, we should clearly understand this as an alternative, but also construct the alternative we might want to construct. So there is an element of uh, how do we politicize the commons. But the commons are everywhere. You and I, in this moment, we are establishing a temporary common, temporary commons, in which we are have been interchanging for our quite some time, and that now we reenacting our relations through this exchange. But this is not a commodity exchange. We are doing it for other motivation than uh, a pure self-interest. You see what I mean? But of course, if you think about it, just name it, and we will discuss whether that particular form that we understand is a con. What I find so remarkable is how there's so many spontaneous um, manifestations of the commons, especially as neoliberalism draws them tighter or becomes just more draconian. I mean, in Greece, uh, after the failure of the Syriza negotiations with the Troika and the failure of their Plan B austerity issues, there's a whole group that are going for a so-called Plan C, which is focused on commons-based peer production. Uh, in Italy, similar story where they're having severe problems with neoliberal austerity, there's quite a cohort of commoners there, especially such things as the city as a commons. What does it mean to treat the city as a commons as opposed to a playground for the rich and affluent and developers? So the, the city as a commons is surging throughout Europe as a way to reclaim the city for ordinary people. Uh, Spain, same thing, a lot of activism on the commons. Recently, a translation of my, my uh, book, Think Like a Commoner, into Spanish through a crowdfunding campaign. So I get, my point is, uh, there's this spontaneous upswell of commons activity through a number of francophone countries, through festivals of the commons that are held in numerous countries, and you know even that last redoubt of capitalism, the United States, there's some significant inroads with commons here because people are starting to see we do need a system change that's quite ambitious and goes beyond the standard the standard alternatives we hear in electoral politics. So I'm, I'm greatly encouraged, despite a lot of reasons to be discouraged about uh, the state of the world. I'm encouraged that there are these many uh, grassroots enterprises. The big challenge now is to develop a greater self-awareness, start to federate these projects, and to see how really how strong we are collectively and imaginatively when we start to, to link up together. How can we get more of it? I think all of us are wondering that. All of us are wondering, how do we do that? And of course, the answer is there's no simple plan other than talking about it and working with one another in uh, listening so that that practice um, is the beginning of uh, producing a common, a commons ecology, a commons economy. 
That, that is, the answer to the question itself becomes a form of common aim because it's a collective task. Uh, just like uh, the Republic of Letters used to be a collective task or a common task, you know, common to all. You didn't have to pay for it. Pay for it. Well, I'm, I'm actually asked that question a lot. You know, I'm interested in the commons. What can I do? You know, there's not a master inventory, but I will say this. What are your passions and talents? There is a group that's devoted to actualizing that on a large scale using commons principles. You know, so I, for example, I ran into a group called HowlRound, which describes itself as a theater commons. And so all sorts of nonprofit and community theater people uh, come together on this website and in-person events to explore the theater as a commons. Well, who'd have guessed? You know, there's, there's uh, I mentioned farm hack and the agricultural equipment. There's, uh, you know, lots of related things like permaculture, if you're into that, or uh, outdoor spaces and, you know, the, the huts in the White Mountains are run by this essentially a commons-based group with the loose supervision of the Forest Service. So what I'm saying is there are dozens, hundreds of different types of commons-based activities that one could um, become involved with. Part of the challenge is these group, these groups developing a, a self-awareness of themselves as commons and not simply as, quote, civil society or a nonprofit that's hierarchically run. You know, how do you run your commons with bottom-up rulemaking, decision-making, and enforcement? Uh, you know, being truly open and responsive to the diverse array of concerns. I mean, this is a, a governance and, and uh, production challenge that is starting to be met. But what I'm saying is there are many, many examples around the world. They're starting to hook up and become aware of each other and becoming, adopting the identity of commoner. And you'll find that that shifts one's perspective and strategic orientation. And, um, you know, so again, I'd say, what are you interested in? You can find a group that's working in a more or less commons-based function on that. And if not, get a group together and do it yourself. Well, you know, they wouldn't do it in an abstract way. They would do it in a real way that referred to actual needs, such as do they need a place to live or... Do they need some daycare for children, or do they need some health care, uh, or do they need uh, nutritious food, uh, or do they need some knowledge? And, and of course, people want all of these, and there's, you know, the commons doesn't provide an answer for all of them, but it's easier to, to help and assist when the specific goals or requirements are stated. Um, and then, it's like what I said at the beginning, there's no expert on the commons, but there are people who have experience in squatting houses. There are people who have experience with uh, childcare and daycare uh, when the state will not do so. Um, they will rely on extended kin next, uh, networks. And uh, the so-called family is at the essence of this. Uh, when I say so-called, I mean the family can can mean can extend to workmates. It can extend to neighbors, uh, and not just to uh, legal kin or biological kin. And so, the, again, the commons and the community are inseparable. So that's 
one thing I'd say. And then another thing I'd say as a scholar and as a, a, a teacher is I don't think you can uh, underestimate the value of learning. Of I don't think you can underestimate um, what can be learned from study. And there is now a very large literature on the commons. It's uneven. It politically is diverse. Uh, but, but this surely should be part of our practice, you know, wherever we go. I'm not saying that we have to become, all of us become students, but certainly learning, reading, listening, um, arguing uh, is part of any uh, commons activity. Uh, certainly it was part of um, the Occupy experience. I'm a social creature, and I like to work and be with others. Uh, and this, I'd say, is what inspires me. You know, it's related to cooperation, it's related to teams, it's related to the essence of sociality. But I like to do it in such a way that produces a new world, produces subsistence and, and, a, and a way of fair and equitable living. Um, but not to speak in such generalities, the, you know, around the world, all of us are, you know, we remember Occupy or we remember the circles and squares of the Mediterranean, you know, the so-called Arab Spring or Toxin Square or the Indignados of Spain. And these are, were all attempts to, like, common in the city, to take a part of the town um, and to discuss production, social reproduction. And, and we had to do so by meeting our needs of security, of subsistence, of water, of health care, of, of knowledge, of uh, amusement and entertainment. All of these became part of that experience of common in the city after 2011. So that, I think, is like a political basis of much of the discussions that we're having now. Um, last summer, I was in South Africa at a, in a town, an, an old town, a uh, university town called Grahamstown, and I was astonished to find um, donkeys and cows roaming in the suburbs, in the green suburbs behind. And I was, I was wondering, you know, and there was nobody around looking after them. And much later, I learned that the verges, you know, by highways and roads, so-called wastelands, were in fact common lands for those people who, who could let their livestock on them. And the people involved, um, they regulated themselves. So the notion of the commons, historically anyway, has been related also to self-government. Um, or to use, uh, I, and to, to workers' control of production as well. Um, so those are, power, those are two powerful ideas, workers' control and self-government. And both of these are connected to, or they're effective when they're connected to economic inputs, to, uh, to use another kind of abstraction. When they're, when they're, employed through so-called natural resources. Um, and in fact, I'd say only, it's only through natural resources that we can begin to effectively common our economic life. Wake up!
real and stopped seizing the things around you. Stop trains, seize workplaces, protect forests. Don't rely on some lawmaker to hopefully pass a bill five years down the line that maybe will help. Don't believe in the concessions of a system that was never made for you to begin with. The question is, how, how does one become a commoner and what makes one a commoner as opposed to you know, another group of people, whether it's the public or just the, you know, a random person on the street or whatever. Yeah, well, you had to basically agree to the rules of the commons. There were definitely rules that had the consequences. Those of you who are familiar with the Zapatistas know that they, well, they don't often use the terminology of commons. They use other terms from the indigenous languages of Chiapas to speak about virtually the same thing. Then with some other friends, and actually with my daughter, we, we became students of the Zapatistas a couple years ago and went to Chiapas and lived with families um, among the Zapatistas who were common in land that had been privatized and in our different ways at different ejidos or different uh, to use the mexican word for a village commons uh, we participated in forms of commoning of of coffee or of of bread or of vegetables and it was a, a very profound experience james it 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 uh, affected me deeply um, and it entirely removed the notion of the commons from the sky and put it right in the earth. You know, right, right on the ground. This is a reality. This is a reality. This is a reality. You don't know what you got.